And uh, we're going to just change gears now and jump right into the message. No video bumper, just me. And so we're in week two of three on uh, the series called Why Cancel Culture Won't Work. And we have a theme verse uh, from Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. We talked about last weekend, Jesus was speaking to Peter. Peter had made an astute observation that Jesus was the Son of God. And uh, he said, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. And the gates of hell will not overpower it. And we want to focus on that today and some words out of that today. Uh, but if you're not too familiar with cancel culture, the, the, the wording, the mechanism of it, uh, somebody, knowing I was speaking on this, uh, s- sent me this, emailed me this, this article. Um, he is uh, not a, a cultural hero of mine. He doesn't play for the Browns, so he's not a football hero. But Aaron Rodgers weighs in on, on uh, can- cancel culture for all you Packers fans. And uh, evidently he had a, they called it a legendary trash talk moment. It was profanity lace, whatnot, at Chicago. I'm not validating that. But it says, I'm not part of this woke cancel culture, Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers speaks. And it says, if you're a sports fan, you understand that trash talking is part of the game. There's a game within the game, Rodgers said. If the player abides by the rules of the game, he's part of the game. Rodgers continued, the rules of the game are you must acquiesce with the woke mob at all times. You must. Now, I don't know about Aaron's issues uh, with uh, cancel culture and the sports world. That's not what we're concerned about. Uh, We want to talk about uh, this idea of a cancel culture where there is a growing body of opinion and worldview that says if you speak out against this, if you stand for what's against this, if you don't believe this, then you're bad, you're evil, you need to be shut down or canceled. And uh, we talked about how people on really both ends of the continuum have dealt with this, whether they're political or conservative, or or liberal or conservative. Uh, It does, studies show, seem to be biased more to cancel conservative viewpoints. But I want, my concern is about spiritual perspectives. And I want to share with you a couple of headlines uh, that are, at the very least, alarming. Uh, The first one that we have, uh, we'll toss it up on the screen, says uh, that uh, cancel culture comes for prayer. And talks about an appeal of a lower court's flawed ruling that finds city officials' support for a community prayer vigil unconstitutional. Uh, this took place in Ocala, Florida, uh, this past year in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, and we tend to just blow past that. But this highlights why it's important that the people who are appointed to federal judgeships are convicted to. Uh, legislate or, or decide on matters from a constitutional perspective. So there was, uh, they're challenging a district court ruling declaring that government officials can no longer encourage citizens to pray amid a difficult time in their community, and volunteer chaplains can no longer lead those in their community in a time of prayer. That was what the suit was about. In Ocala, there was a time of a real upheaval, a crime spree, resulted in injury to several children. Uh, the police trying to find out who the shooters are. Consistent with community policing standards, regularly employed by the city's police department, Chief Graham met with local NAACP leaders who suggested the police department reach out to the local faith-based community for help. In response, community leaders decided to hold a community prayer vigil. The vigil was planned and organized by private citizens. Volunteer chaplains, along with private citizens, led the vigil that was widely supported and well attended. At the request of the organizers for the event, Chief Graham posted a letter encouraging unity and prayer and attendance at the vigil. 
atheists in the community, offended by the idea of prayer at the vigil, demanded city officials cancel the event, despite city officials' continued explanation that it could not cancel a privately organized event, the atheists cried foul and later sued the city for allegedly promoting the vigil. Now, some of you are thinking, well, you're not supposed to do that at a public event. Let me suggest to you that you've already been gradually influencing your mindset and interpretation of events uh, toward the idea of a cancel culture. Uh, let's look at another one. Uh, Awoke public school teachers are targeting Christian students. And uh, unfortunately, the article says, against clear Supreme Court precedent, there has been a new threat to students' liberties due to an increasingly woke culture that silences our children and their faith while at school. There are those who say now they have awakened to a new level of sensitivity and what's right and wrong, and uh, biblical perspectives are falling on what's called the wrong side of this. Earlier this spring, a public school drama teacher in Florida specifically went after a middle school student. Now think of you as an adult. What adult does not have the upper hand of intimidation with a 6th, 7th, or 8th grader? For including a reference to Jesus in her monologue assignment, the particular monologue written by the student addressed the hardship of her medical condition. She ended the monologue with this discussion, Q&A. Question, how can you be so happy with this condition? Her answer, I feel Jesus accepts me for who I am, and that's what keeps me going every day. If I were her daughter, her dad, I would have said, good job, honey. The student was so proud to share this personal and important discussion as part of her monologue, and she was rightly concerned when the teacher told her she had to rewrite the, agree- the assignment to exclude any mention of religion. This specific monologue assignment had no limitations as to the topic or content, and the students were told to create the monologue in their own words. However, the teacher proceeded to tell the student to rewrite her monologue as the teacher's classroom has no religious references policy. The teacher went a step further and compared religious discussions to offensive ethnic and racial comments. I'm offended by that comparison. I also have guidelines, the teacher said, about ethnic and racial, racial stereotypes, which are part of my explanation to students if they ever write something that could be offensive to someone's belief system. If you make a religious reference, it could offend a student. This is what wokeness has come to, shaming middle school students for expressing their joy in their personal relationship with Jesus Christ because it's considered offensive. This is a clear violation of this student's First Amendment's rights and an affront to the religious liberties rooted deeply in the history and culture of the United States. I think back to when I was in high school and the many times I had opportunity to share my faith with peers who really needed it and were questioning and searching. That is not uh, unallowable. I don't know what their word is. That's not inappropriate in the United States of America. We are guaranteed the right to free speech. We're guaranteed the right to religion. And you see how religious perspective, a la this perspective, is being slid over to the undesirable pile of things, along with racial slurs and ethnic slurs, which I'm offended that we're going to say, Jesus is my hope, is equal to a racial slur. But if we sit by, if you sit back and go, well, you're just not supposed then 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 the, the agenda is working and we're gradually allowing ourselves to be marginalized in a culture where we need to be front and center. 
So with that said, the verse, I will build my church, we're going to unpack that today. And we're going to pack, unpack those five words, I will build my church. If you want to go further with us, Wednesday night, uh, we've started something in the West Auditorium called Deeper Dive. I'll be leading the discussion Wednesday night, uh, answering questions and just looking at this further. What are the implications? Where are we heading? How do we respond? So join us if you don't have something else to do on Wednesday night uh, here in the building. Set your DVR for whatever it is you watch and uh, meet me in, in the West Auditorium. So let's start with I will build. Say I will build. Now it's not really you, so say he will build. So we're talking about Jesus said, I will build my church. If Jesus said, I will build my church, you can take it to the bank as they say, he will build his church. He's been doing it for 2,000 years through all kinds of uh, challenges and struggles. Those who would mount up against it, those who would cheer in favor of the church, Jesus will build the church. And I think of a verse, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. It's one of the theme verses of my life. I've referred to it again and again and again uh, in the struggles that I experienced as a Christian. And here's what Paul says. In fact, go ahead and read this with me. I'm going I'm to give you a little warning, okay? Um, I need to read, you to read this with a sense of conviction. And last night, I had to make them stand. Because you just read better standing. So if you want to save yourself the gripe, then read it with passion while you're sitting, okay? Or I guarantee you, you are going to be up. All right? So, ready? Let's go. For he who began... Man, you didn't want to stand up, did you? I am confident. Not in me. I look in the mirror and there are days I have no confidence in that guy. I have no confidence he can change anything about him. Powerless to do so. Cannot become who Christ wants him to be. But I am confident of this very thing. He who began a good work, Jesus, he can complete it. His tenacity, his perseverance, just on one Christian I know boom, blows my mind. That when I began that decision, man, it was over a half a century ago, he is still completing. He will continue to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I have found, I don't know about you, I don't know what your walk with Christ is like and following after Jesus and wanting to be more like him. I have found, here's my spiritual life. I'll summarize it in just 30 seconds. Anybody else relate? I also know that the Bible says we have an adversary, Peter, one of Jesus' best friends, an adversary seeking whom he may devour, and the Bible calls him the accuser. He takes opportunities, so when I am like this, he's kind of quiet. But as soon as I'm doing this, I do the moonwalk, but I never could do that. Right? That would be a cool thing to do right now. Anyway. But that's not the way it is when you're going back. It's not a move, right? When I'm doing this, there's this little voice. Here you go again. Ever heard that one? And then, you, and, then, and, then and, and you call yourself a Christian. Anybody heard that one? Let's see. Who, who's heard that one in your head? You call yourself a Christian. And then you know what he adds to his arsenal with me? Not only does he say when I'm doing this, and you call yourself a Christian, you call yourself a pastor. Yeah. 
And again, if, if my confidence was just on the guy in the mirror, the person you're looking at now, I'd have none. I've told you for over 30 years, I preach a perfect word. I preach about a perfect word from an imperfect life. We're all a work in process. And not all the verses will be on stage today, uh, on screen. So if you have your Bible, go to Luke 21. You're going to want to go there. I thought when I accepted Christ over half a century ago, preteen, early teenage years, that accepting Christ, my, my walk with Christ would be like this. In fact, I'll be honest. I thought my walk with Christ was going to be... Now, yeah, Rocky. Now, I, I, man, it's like there's days I, I'm just going to crawl across the finish line, but by golly, I'm going to get there. And so, until the day of Christ Jesus, he says. What's the day of Christ Jesus? Talked about it last week. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, go read it. Paul says there's going to be a, an angel, the voice of an angel. There's going to be a trumpet someday, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those of us who are alive and remain will be caught together with them to meet them in the air. We'll have glorified bodies, body, soul, spirit. Once again, reunited, we will always be with the Lord. That is the day of the coming of the Lord. And he says in that verse, comfort each other with these words. And so, well, when is that going to happen? And, and that is meant to be a, you know what, when, I, when, I am, when I'm doing not this, but when I'm doing this, I tell myself, yeah, but you know what, someday Jesus is coming. He's going to continue this process in me, and he has for over half a century. And you know what, when I'm doing this, Jesus is coming. And when I'm doing this, it still doesn't compare to the fact that Jesus is coming. And so, until the, the coming of Christ, turn to Luke chapter 21 now. Because you say, well, when is he coming? As far as I'm concerned, he could have come a long time ago. I don't have to finish this sermon if he wants to. That'd be fine with me. I would miss a great lunch my wife has planned, but that would be fine with me. <laughs> they probably got corned beef in heaven. So anyway. Yeah, matzo ball and corned beef. Well, it's the first ever, so. So verse 7, Luke 21, you got your Bible or Bible device. And they questioned Jesus, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So if you're not big or or clear about end times events and whatnot, this is a great chapter to kind of dig into. So when are we going to know when all this happens? Because before the, right after the rapture of the church, all hell breaks loose on planet earth, and then there is the final second coming of Christ that I've preached about in other sermon series. So look at what Jesus says in verse 10. This is to give you an idea. When these things start to happen, get ready, because it means Jesus is coming pretty soon. Verse 10, then he continued by saying to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. This is going to be political and military unrest. We've got none of that so far, so we're good. Sarcasm intended. There will be great earthquakes, geological disturbance, and in various places, plagues called pandemics. Plagues and famines, supply chain shortages. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Twice in this chapter, he talks about astronomical, astronomy signs, things that'll happen. that will be like, whoa, what's going on in the stars and the heavens? 
But before all these things, say before. They will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. And I wrote in the margin there, and supreme courts. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. How do you cope with that physical condition? Jesus. So make up your mind. Say make up your mind. Not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to refute. But you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all on account of me. Culture is going to try to cancel you. There's going to be a hatred towards you, and and already you can hear the vitriol in our culture toward people who adhere to a biblical worldview and biblical morality. Hatred already is coming our way. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. I'm having trouble with that verse. Just saying. I had a fro when I started here. (laughs) By your endurance, say my endurance. You'll gain your lives. Okay, now, if, if not a hair in your head will perish, then how is it that you're saying that they're going to put some of you to death? That sounds kind of like perishing to me. Let's go to a biblical perspective on this. Let's go back here to kind of a timeline. Let's say that this mic here, this crowd mic, is when I was born back in Cleveland, Ohio in 1956. I'll save you the math, 65, okay, last week. <laughs> All right, so October 14th. So, so here's when I'm born. And then around here, I accept Christ. Got baptized a little later. And then, so I, let's say I live to be as old as my grandpa, 94. That's a long time. So I'm probably like right about here-ish. Now, my earthly life goes from October 14, 1956 to whatever the math would be if I die at 94 or 2000, whatever. Boom. But something happened to me, and if you're a Christian, happened to you. Somewhere around here, I accepted Christ. If anyone was in Christ, I became a new creature. And I not only have earthly life, but I said yes to Jesus Christ. Whosoever believeth him shall have eternal life. So now all of a sudden, layered on my earthly life is this thing called eternal life. And by the way, it's life more abundantly. So that now, because I have Christ within me, the hope of glory, when I die, when I breathe my last breath here, it's like a speed bump. And then I keep on going to a better life yet called eternal life. It started back then and it continues to go. So that's why Jesus can say, you know what? Uh, They will even put some of you to death. And who knows if that's the case but not a hair of your head will be numbered in, in an analogy sense. But the worst they can do is take your earthly life. I'm living, I'm enjoying this earthly life, and it's got its challenges and its pain and its struggles. But you know what I'm looking forward to? And when this earthly life gets too difficult and too, too bored, laid down, I remind myself, but I got eternal life beyond that. And Jesus gave signs to say when he was going to be coming. And the more I look out at the world, the more a mess it feels like I actually can comfort myself and say, wait a minute. 
Look at verse 25. There'll be signs in the sun and moon and stars and upon the earth. So when crazy stuff starts happening and they tell you the Hubble telescope is revealing this or that or whatever, just tell yourself, you know what? Jesus told us this would be the case. Dismay among nations. Glad there's no dismay among nations. In perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. And I put in question mark global warming concerns. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming from the, upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And they, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So sometime after all this stuff begins to take place and the rapture of the church and then all hell breaks loose for a few years, then boom, they're going to see Jesus coming. Boom, and it'll establish a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 28, but, say but. But when these things begin to take place, say begin. When these things get started, all this scary stuff I just read that kind of makes you feel like, ooh, right? All right. When that stuff begins to take place, Jesus says, straighten up. Lift up your head because your redemption is drawing near. Because, see, I don't believe we're going to go through the worst of the worst. I believe there's the rapture of church going to happen first. There's going to be a trumpet and, a, and an angel sound, and we're going to be out of here, and then the rest of it crashes and burns. And so Jesus said, when this begins to take place, straighten up and lift up your head and encourage each other that it won't be long. We will be leaving here. That was a good like, amen moment if you wanted to do that. He will build and is building the church. Now, you have to let him... You don't have to be more like Jesus. You don't have to do his will. He is not a micromanager, and for whatever reason, he allows us free will and free choice. You can go ahead and skip on your merry way, and then when things go bad, cry out to him, and oh, fix it, please, and then get mad because it's not going right because you're doing your own thing. You can do all that and wander all around. But if you are, are sincere in, Lord, I want to be like Jesus, he says, good, because I want you to be like me too. I will build my church. And then the second point we're going to deal with, the only two points of this message, my church. Say his church. All right. What we're going to see about his church, he loves the church. He loves, that means he loves us. In fact, Jesus said in the Gospel of John, we did a whole series on John in, in the summer, in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this than what? He laid on his life. For his friends. And Jesus laid down his life, gave himself up for the church. Jesus can't possibly love you any more than he does right now. Always has, always will. Even when I'm doing this, and even when I'm not just, let's not sugarcoat it, I don't just do this sometimes, sometimes I do this. He still loves me. So we got one exercise. I'm sorry you got to stand up. So let's get the groaning over with now. Just groan. Uh, stand up, all right? What I want you to do is I want you to look around and at people you did not come to church with. I want you to just point at five people and say, you, you, just pick them up. You're picking out who, who is the church that he loves, he gave himself up for. And if you're not a Christian, look, it doesn't apply to you yet, but hopefully you will. Just point at five people and go, you, you, just, just call them out. Just point them out. You, 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 do it. You, 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 
That felt kind of good. I picked on the visa. I want all of you. All right, have a seat. That's who we're talking about. You are who Jesus loves this much that if you happen to be on the planet at the same time he was 2,000 years ago, this is the way he would love you. So let's just kind of look at how Jesus loved the church. You go back to, and I'm not, you don't have to keep up with these verses. I'm just going to reference them quickly. But in, let's go to the Gospel of John for most of this. John 1, verse 14. What does it say? The Word became flesh and dwelt among them. The Word of God, Jesus, becomes flesh and hung out with us. If we're going to love the church like Jesus loved the church, we've got to hang out with each other. Not just come in, sit, experience, and leave. Spent time with them. The Word became flesh, dwelt among them. He celebrated life with them. His first miracle, John chapter 2, was at a wedding reception. Our son got married at the end of September, and they had a really fun wedding reception, all right? Not like the one in Cana, but I asked for a picture of it. I'm surprised. Here's a picture of Jonathan and Monica dancing at their wedding reception. What I don't have are pictures of me keeping a promise to my daughter-in-law I told her, I will dance at your wedding. And Joyce knows why there are no pictures of that. There were a handful of young adults from CLC at that reception. You must never make any of that public. But we had a ball. Jesus wasn't just, I'm the son of God. He was fun to be with. In fact, the super religious types didn't care for him so much, but the sinners, man, you want to have Jesus at your party? We were out of wine. He made wine out of water. So here, Jesus, Jesus celebrated life with. So, you know, do you, have, do you invite, do you celebrate your birthday with people or anniversary? You can't do it with everybody, all right? But there should, at least be, there should at least be somebody as a fellow Christian, not family. I'm talking beyond that. In your church family, that you can think of, yeah, I did my birthday with them. We went on a vacation with them. Or we, we went on a picnic or a cookout or whatever. Or, or what he had deep spiritual conversations. John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Have you had deep spiritual conversations with other Christians? Or do you simply have them in your mind between you and me while I'm on stage? They celebrate spiritual disciplines together. John chapter 1, the Son of God got baptized. And at the end of the gospel, what do they do with the Last Supper? They had communion together. Next weekend we're going to do that. We celebrate those things together. We do a Daniel fast, often at the first of the year. Fasting is a spiritual discipline because Jesus did those disciplines together with the church he loved. And so we want to be like Jesus. Amen? Amen. So we do that. They travel together. John chapter 4, they're going all the way through Samaria. So Jesus is so tired from from the journey, sits down at the well. I'll never forget when Joyce and I went on vacation with Wayne and Mary and their family. They're, I'm not sure if they're in this service. Yeah, there's Mary. Remember that? And we, we, went to, we went to West Virginia to go whitewater rafting, right? Our kids were like elementary age, whatnot. And uh, um, if you've been in a car with me, thank God you're still alive. <laughs> no. Um, you know I get engrossed in things. And so Joyce and I are driving along, and we're listening to, at that time, it was a New Mercy Me CD. 
And so we're dreaming about how I could use that in a sermon, okay? Because I was going to go speak at Evans University. And we're dreaming this whole thing up. And, and I'm following Wayne because Wayne knows where he's going, okay? We're dreaming this whole thing up. And after about 10 minutes, you know, of this brainstorming and driving along, um, we go, where'd Wayne go? <laughs> I look at my rearview mirror and Wayne is behind me. <laughs> I didn't even know I passed him. <laughs> They hung out together. They traveled together. They talked, they talked spiritual questions together, spiritual disciplines together. They did ministry work together. John chapter 6, Jesus is crushing it all day long with his teaching series. Bam, bam, bam. There's like 20,000 people there if you count the men, women, and children. And what does Jesus do at the end? Hey, guys, before we leave, we're going to have a spontaneous banquet. We're going to cater all these people their dinner. And they all freak out. You can read the story. But there's something about when you do ministry work together and they had them all sit down and divvy out the bread and the fish and then they collected all in leftovers and gave it to a local charity or whatever. And, I mean, there's just something cool about... Last night we, were, we, we had uh, the harvest party. And uh, so Joyce and I had our usual place out there by the SLC. And, and so we stood there. We were, we were cookie, ho-ho, Twinkie, and cider dispensers. Hot cider. In the rain. So it rained off and on all night. We just stood there in the drizzle, and it, it was so fun. The little kid, we love we love kids and their parents. It was just a blast, you know. And they're all, I want cider, you know. I don't want cider, whatever. And it was just fun. And kids have always been important to us. I remember the first thing we did when I became lead pastor. One of the first major things we did was build the, the kids' building because there wasn't enough space for our children. But what's so, what's so cool afterwards as well is that, you know, I walked through the building and just fist bumping all the staff and all the volunteers. Hey, way to go, guys. Way to go, guys. In fact, I told Joyce, I go, yeah, that girl over here, she was doing that face painting. The face painting was like incredible last night. And in fact, I said, we're painting that here? I'm like, yeah. So, but there's just something fun about serving together. If you're not serving together, you're cheating yourself. You're not live, loving us like Jesus loved us. You just want to get us involved. I do, but you want to know why I want to get you involved? <laughs> You want to know why? Because it's good for you. We're not going to shut the doors if you don't volunteer. It's good for you. When people go from, I don't do anything, to I have my part, it goes from them to us and we. We are in this together. And then there's a whole bunch of what they call one another's. Look in your concordance or Google one another in the Bible. There's like dozens of them in the New Testament. Things like encourage one another. Man, can you imagine how Peter felt in Matthew when Jesus said, I know your name is Cephas, which means reed like a cattail blown around, but I'm going to call you rock because, man, you are solid. And, it's, and the, the disciples are like, Peter, solid? He thinks first and you know, speaks first and thinks later. Jesus was an encourager. Encourage one another. Could you imagine the encouragement of Christ? Forgive one another. Man, they bring that woman caught in the act of adultery and they sh she should have been stoned to death by the law. And Jesus says, well, let him without sin cast the first stone. Of course I forgive you. And then, I mean, let's go more personal. Near the end of the gospel, all of his disciples except John abandoned him in his worst hour of need. And what does he do? Two chapters later, he's having a fish bake for them on, on an open fire. Of course he forgave them. Are you still holding grudges against some Christian way back when or maybe down the road now? He encouraged one another, forgave one another. The Bible says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And he rejoiced with those who rejoice. You know what? You go to the Gospel of John when Lazarus, his good friend, died. And we see that in John chapter 11, the shortest verse of the Bible, verse 35, Jesus wept. There is something 
soul-soothing when a friend of yours, a Christian friend of yours, comes to you in your worst hour of need and says, man, I'm so sorry. I have no idea how you must feel, but my heart aches with you. There's just something about that. Rather than, well, you know, if you would only... No. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Serve and be served. Can you imagine when he's there having dinner and Mary comes in and wipes his feet, uh, anoints his feet and then wipes his feet with her hair in front of all the guests? Awkward. And then at the Last Supper, what does he do? He turns around and he washes the disciples' feet. And it reminded me, I couldn't help but think of one of our 10 core values. If you haven't read them yet, go to Growth Track. It's second hour every, every month, every service for four weeks. One of our 10 core values is community. Listen to how our leadership team defined it back in the 90s. Community. We believe God designed us to serve, to value others above ourselves, and to be served, to allow others to fulfill needs in our lives. As we are obedient to this calling, God brings together our talents and abilities to form a powerful Christian community. You're telling me that community means serving and being served? Yeah. We thought, because you know what? If, if you aren't close to somebody, have a connection with somebody, whatever. First of all, they, you don't know what their needs are to serve them, and they don't know what your needs are to serve you. Second, there's not a closeness and a trust that, okay, I'm going to trust you. with my, Did you ever trust somebody with your needs and then they let you down or they turned away from it? Oh, it's a horrible feeling. To serve and be served. Jesus modeled that. Both aspects of that. Are you close enough with some Christians that they know your needs and can serve them and you know their needs and you can serve them in ways that matter? Are you close enough to Christians that you can weep with them or celebrate with them? They'll say, hey, celebrate because this happened. Are you close enough to Christians to meaningfully encourage them and they encourage you? And then pray for one another. Jesus was praying with his disciples all throughout his life. You get to John 17. He prays specifically, intensely for them and for all of us. How much of your prayer life is about the needs of other Christians? The walk that other Christians are having in their life? Or how much is it just obsessed with God? I need your help with me. I got to find a spouse. I got to get a job. I got to have a better job. I got to get a raise. I got problems with my marriage, my kids. My da, 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 da. How much of our prayer life is consumed with us? How much of it is spent also praying for the people Jesus loved. The people that Jesus prayed for. How much are you celebrating with the people that Jesus celebrated with? Doing life with, traveling, talking, sharing. How much are we like Jesus? And the degree to which what I'm describing that Jesus was with, with the church that is different from the way you are with the church is probably also going to be reflected in the level of disappointment or almost ready to give up on the church because it's not really impacting my life. You see how deeply connected we were meant to be. They ate together. They cooked out together. Fish was Jesus' specialty. I don't have a cookout specialty, I don't think. I'm, I'm a bad cook at everything. But. <laughs> they sang together. They worshiped together. They learned together. They laughed together. They loved together. And then he left. That's a fine thing to do, except he left them, then he gave them the Holy Spirit. And so he said, I am leaving. And you know what he did when he left? He gave them, listen, my job's not finished yet. 
So I'm going to commission you. We call it the Great Commission. I want you to go into all the world and make disciples. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. I want you to teach them all that I commanded you. And lo, if you're on that mission, I will be with you always until the end of the age, whenever that is. And I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He'll be your helper. So first of all, he's going to help you in the process that is endless, this process. The Holy Spirit's going to help you become who you can be in me and help you the longer you serve me to be a reflection of Jesus. He's going to cultivate in you with your obedience and your effort the fruit of the Spirit. He's going to help you have more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit because I can't do that stuff on my own. I don't know about you. I can only get there so far, and there's enough that can pile up in the world. I lose my joy. I don't have patience. I don't feel like loving. All that stuff comes against me. But you know what? I can because I got this amazing power, the power of the Holy Spirit in me to help cultivate that. So by golly, that kid who was a preteen or a teenager here that accepted Christ is still following the one who is working in him through his Holy Spirit, shaping from the inside out. He had a long way to go when I started here. He has still got a long way to go, even though I'm here, but he's not going to quit on me if I don't quit on him. And he will not quit on you if you do not quit on him. The biggest determinant to you becoming like Christ is if you stay in his hands. So he left, and he gives us the power to be like him, but then he left. He left. You picked a fine time to leave us, Jesus. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. He would say, I told you that would happen. I told you all the stuff freaking you out was going to happen. But I also told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I want you with me. If I want you with me, I'll come back for you. So when all this stuff happens and life is freaking you out, encourage yourself. He's coming any day. And I'm going to give you power to be my witnesses. It's, he's not just going to give us power to be good Christians and love, joy, and peace on the inside. He says, you know what? We're going a step further than that. We are changing this culture. No matter how bad it wants to cancel you and, and, and stifle you, we are changing this culture. I'm going to give you power. That same power that transforms you is the power of the Holy Spirit. And when he comes upon you, I'm going to give you power to be my witnesses, to be my transformers in Jerusalem, where you live, in Judea, spreading the church, in Samaria, cross-culturally, and the uttermost parts of the earth around the world. I'm going to give you power to be change agents across the world. We call it our God-sized vision. So that together, if we realize how much Jesus loves us, he empowers us to know God we talked last week, it's not just a head knowledge, it's an increasing hunger for him to know God, and when you know him, to be his people. The important people, the significant people in your life, you've become more like them, whether you like it or not. They've rubbed off on you. And the more you know Jesus, he rubs off on you. 
And John says in the first letter of John, he says, if you don't love other people, you don't love Jesus. So if you know God and you be his people, you value others. You just can't help value them like I just read. And when you know God and you are his people and you value others, we will change our world with Christ's help. One person, one neighborhood, one family, one nation at a time until he returns. The culture will not, can not cancel the church because Jesus Christ is our head and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit and we have Christ within us, the hope of glory.